Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 29, and we're covering the period up to the start of Operation Reindeer, which was to take place in early May 1978. First, the planning phases, of which there were many. By early that year, intelligence had convincingly proven that there were a number of SWAPO bases that were critical to the organization's operations in southern Angola, and these had to be attacked. Last episode, the main base was at Kasinga, 250 kilometers north of the cut line, the southwest African border. There were signs that Swapo was increasing its attacks on the farm areas around Vambalan, and the SADF was determined to stop these. Swapo's forward operational bases were filling up, and heavy support weapons were being moved south. The commercial farming areas were likely to be subjected to a flood of incursions, particularly since these were also timed to coincide with the height of the rainy season. After the first photographs taken by South African Air Force Buccaneers, I spoke about last episode that indicated Kasinga was the main HQ of Swapo's Armed People's Liberation Army of Namibia group, a flurry of intelligence gathering began. The Rekis, or reconnaissance groups, entered Angola with a more accurate picture of where they should focus, while 3-2 Battalion's reconnaissance wing augmented these specialists along with more flights by Canberra's at 20,000 feet, assisted by mirages at times. The big question that emerged was the size of the SADF force needed to attack Kasinga and the second target of Chitaquera, as well as a number of smaller satellite bases around the latter. Meanwhile, a heavy blanket of secrecy enveloped the planning for the upcoming attack on southern Angola. One of the most important characters of the upcoming assault was 3-2 Battalion Commander Colonel Jan Breitenbach. He had passed through Kasinga on the way back during Operation Savannah three years before, and what's more was a paratrooper with experience in Biafra in Nigeria. He had also launched one reconnaissance commander, the Rekis, which were an SAS-type organization. Of course, he had no idea what Boerta and the cabinet as well as Army Head Fulun were planning. There were a number of other paratroop commanders in the SADF who could have been drawn in to this attack, but HQ settled on Breitenbach partly because of his experience in Angola. When he was called into General Fulun's office, he was expecting to face some sort of disciplinary hearing, which Breitenbach attracted because of his direct manner. As he entered the office, the short general remained seated behind his desk. This was an unusual way to receive a senior officer of Colonel and above. Furthermore, Fulian didn't offer Breitenbach a seat and merely said, Jan, I want you to take command of paratroopers who are going to jump in and destroy a Swapo base in Angola. Later, Breitenbach explained it was like being hit in the solar plexus. The general mentioned the targets were Chitaquera and Kasinga and said one of these was reserved for the Air Force. Breitenbach remembered entering the town during Savannah, but things were rather vague. They drove through without stopping on their way south out of Angola in 1975, and he was trying to recall what the town looked like. He had actually stopped 20 kilometers towards the border at Techamoteti for a routine break while waiting for Delville Linford's Alpha Group Sand Battalion to catch up. As for Chitaquera, Breitenbach was to say later, it could just as well have been a crater on the moon. The general said the attack would happen soon, but did not provide a date. As soon as possible. The paratroopers are already called up. You must join them right away at Lataba Ranch, said Fulun. Breitenbach accepted the job, then realized he had last jumped as a paratrooper into Tet province in Mozambique with the Rhodesian SAS some time back. Fulun hustled Breitenbach out of his office with a comment that the paratroopers were unfit and needed to get into shape. One parachute battalion were waiting while 2nd and 3rd Parachute Battalions were Citizen Force Units, CF. That meant they needed to be called up from Civi Street. 
They were on their way to Latabo Ranch, which was a training area adjacent to the Kruger National Park on the Latabo River. It was previously a private game reserve, but had been bought by the army to train specialist soldiers like paratroopers and sometimes the wreckies. The nearby river was full of crocodiles. Lions often broke through the Kruger fence, and elephants were a constant threat. Breitenbach went off to a briefing by Director of Army Operations at HQ, Brigadier Hannes Boerter. He told him that the plan at that stage was to drop 2nd and 3rd parachute battalions on two bases. They were between 20 and 40 kilometers north of Beacon 8.5 and beyond the cut line. This would change later, as you're going to hear. Breitenbach figured out that Boerter was talking about Chittaguera. Before the airborne assaults, the South African Air Force bombers and fighters would hit Kasinga, codenamed Moscow, 250 kilometers north of the border. Then they'd return to Andangwa, refuel, rearm, and take off once more to provide a strike on what Boerter called Vietnam. That was the code for Chittaguera. The paratroopers would arrive after this pasting and attack Kasinga in an airdrop. Meanwhile, Chittaguera would be attacked by land. Breitenbach realized something else. If he was to be in charge of these three parachute battalions, how would he be allowed to jump himself and where? Chittaguera or Kasinga? So he decided instead that he'd base himself on board an Alouette helicopter so he could control both targets simultaneously. That was when he first heard the name of this upcoming operation that was to change the bush war. They'd called it Breilov, or Wedding. What a stupid code name it was to allocate to a gung-ho parachute assault, he grumbled to himself. Then it was changed to Operation Reindeer, and as he says, by someone with a warped sense of humor, Santa Claus's soldiers were coming. The paratroopers arrived at Latabo Ranch, alias Impala Base, because of the herds of Impala. Two and three para were to M-plane and C-130s at Vatikluf, and they were to be flown to Palabora, close to the central Kruger Park, and then from there they'd be driven to Impala Base. Because the men of two and three were a territorial unit, as I said, they were campers. In other words, they had jobs as civilians. At least once a year, they'd attend a training camp for less than a month. And here and there, some would find themselves called up to do a three-month extended deployment in Ovambaland. They'd been used as a reaction force based in Ondangwa, which is not exactly what paratroopers are trained to do. They usually spearhead assaults and are an offensive strike force, not a reaction force. When the paratroopers eventually arrived at Impala Base, they really thought it was just advanced training and had no idea what awaited them in May 1978. For the next few weeks, these 450 men woke before dawn, ran long distances through the bush while skirting elephants, ate breakfasts of leathery eggs and greasy bacon, and hunks of bread washed down with sweet coffee, then headed on to weapons training and battle drills. These included live firing, crawling, machine gun practice along with mortars and firing the Russian RPG-7s. Some wondered why they were practicing to assault fortified guerrilla bases in sections and companies. Battle drills were also odd, including rapid grouping after a parachute drop, attacking trenches and bunkers, all of this at subunit level, in other words, small sections. They were used to jumping out of choppers deployed in follow-up operations and suddenly here they were, practicing conventional parachute drops. How odd. Some began to guess what they were up to, but of course they had still no idea what the target would be. Other techniques were even more conventional. They were practicing flots or forward lines own troops. That was learning how to use colored flares to mark points for South African Air Force bombers or ground support to pick out friend versus foe. It was the extraction drills that unnerved a few others along with the FACs or forward air controllers, which meant 
calling in airstrikes under fire. Finally, and even more nerve-wracking for some, they had to train to withdraw on foot under fire just in case extraction failed. This was in case they had to fight all the 250 kilometers back to the cut line, but of course they had no idea why they were being asked to train, let alone that they'd end up jumping into a town that far into Angola. No one had ever done this, so why would they imagine it was likely? The final training was to be sessions of hand-to-hand fighting, the use of knives, and even unarmed combat. Then something really strange happened. General Fulyun ordered that these men hand in their bayonets. That was the soldier's last line of defense after the 7.62 rounds had run out and they were staring the enemy in the eye. Breitenbach had a fit, reminding Fulyun and the other SADF officers that the men were going to be clearing bunkers and may run into an enemy soldier after running out of rounds. As you're going to hear in future episodes, that is precisely what was going to happen. So it was weeks of eat, sleep, train, jump drills, landing drills, emergency drills, extraction drills, jumping from trees and logs, parachute landing falls or PLFs, running into C-160s then carrying out drops, collecting parachutes, repeat, repeat, repeat. They practiced two real jumps out of these C-160s. First, two battalion and then three. Many were practicing with unmodified canopies or pumpkins as they were known. These were PT-10s and were almost impossible to control, dumping a jumper where gravity took them along with the wind. Fortunately, these would be replaced by more modern parachutes by the time of reindeer. Then they were ready, but there would be a glitch. After all the preparations, someone blabbed, and rumors began circulating that the SADF was planning a major assault. The planners had some leeway because the rumor mongers were suggesting that this was going to be a cross-border assault to assist the Rhodesian SAS. Still, Army HQ decided the mission was no longer viable and both two and three parachute battalions were duly informed to stand down and head off home. They were shocked, but they were told because they had trained so hard they were still going to jump with full kit including RPG-7s, mortars, bombs, rockets, radios and with live ammunition. Most were also carrying 11 R1 magazines and the total weight they were going to jump with was around 60 kilograms and they duly did their obligatory and what they thought was their last jump. That went well, and then they were all sent home. Breitenbach returned to Pretoria HQ with a fresh tan. By now, he developed his nickname, which was Brainman, or Brown Man, because he spent so much time in the bush, and also because he led black troops. No one was very politically correct back in that day. It quickly became apparent from intelligence gathering in southern Angola that despite the rumors circulating back in South Africa, Swapo was not aware of any imminent conventional invasion by an airborne army. Perhaps this false message could be the SADF's lucky break. This meant the attack was on again, but now it needed some kind of cover story. That was dreamed up by Army and Air Force HQ and called Exercise Quicksilver. The plan was to publicly announce a war game style exercise to test new battle drills and the new rifles, the armored troop carriers. The airborne units would be mobilized alongside one side infantry battalion in a combat group called Juliet. This new mechanized force would then head off to Oshivelo near Atoshapan, close to the Angolan border, but only after a very public display north of Kimberley at the Smitsdruf training area. That bordered the Orange River. It was also going to be put on by 72 mechanized brigade and would involve two and three parachute battalions. It was mentioned that was the reason why they had been training so hard at Lataba Farm. This deployment was considered normal by international observers. So far, so good, at least 
from the SADF's point of view. Swapo, meanwhile, was aware of these developments, but did not believe an invasion of Angola was likely, at least imminently. Perhaps by late winter it was in the offing, but not at the beginning of May. All incoming troops ended up in Oshabelo anyway, further confounding any possible double-guessing by the Angolans, so when this battalion finally headed off to northern Avambaland, it was thought Swapo would take note, but wouldn't suspect the real intention. The Russians also failed to pick up intelligence about this attack, despite their spy and top South African Navy officer Dieter Gerhardt, who at this stage was sending intelligence to Moscow, and despite their new satellite spying technology. The SADF duly sent invitations to the international and local media to join Exercise Quicksilver near Kimberley, and various foreign military attaches duly arrived with their staff. Eventually, a large group of observers of various sorts arrived at Smitsdorf at the end of April and the beginning of May 1978. 72 motorized infantry brigade, or the stalking horse, as some called it, unsuspectingly rolled up at Smitsdorf in their new rattles. It was an immense display by those who saw this exercise, rattles firing, elans attacking, artillery live ammunition testing, mechanized warfare in full view. The observers, however, noticed that the two parachute battalions appeared to have been withheld. Perhaps they were going to put on a show by the last day, May 4th. Far away in the main city centers of South Africa, around 450 paratroopers bid their families goodbye and then climbed aboard the trains. These men were briefed that they were going to join the exercise near Kimberley. The trains chugged past Bloemfontein and then turned eastwards and headed towards Koffiefontein. So, they thought, we're not going to Tempe, the home of one parachute battalion. An hour later, in the middle of the felt, the trains suddenly halted at night. The men disembarked to find they were marooned on an isolated farm, surrounded by tents and a few dilapidated buildings. They grumbled, preferring Tempe. Why base them here if they were going to conduct a run-of-the-mill exercise? Some of the more wide-awake realized something else may be going on when they spotted die Brainmann, Colonel Jan Breitenbach. The penny had dropped. The airborne attack on Kasinga that was to follow was going to be vastly different things to different people. As I've mentioned, Swapper was going to paint a picture of 7,000 racists descending on a refugee camp to slaughter women and children. The SADF was going to paint a picture of a few good men fighting a camp full of soldiers who were slaughtering Southwest African civilians with mines and bombs. Newspaper reports in South South Africa would call this upcoming operation the most significant paratroop action since the Second World War, such as the German capture of Fort Ibn Amel. As Willem Steenkamp points out, those involved remember this operation as one that was strictly limited and which went disastrously wrong at first, yet ended with most objectives being reached. The reality is Reindeer was much more ambitious than Breloff because the initial plan had not involved a completely airborne attack. What was extraordinary is that it would be the first time in the South African Army's history that an airborne attack would be carried out. And as anyone who has studied military history knows, airborne attacks often go disastrously wrong. The list is quite long. The Germans' invasion of Crete in 1941, for example, it was spearheaded by over 20,000 men, most of whom who would arrive by transport planes and gliders. While the Germans succeeded in eventually taking the three airfields on Crete, more than 3,000 were killed and Hitler would never attempt such an undertaking again. They would instead be used for specialist insertions or ground-based elite infantry, but never a full-scale paratrooper insertion by air occurred again. 
and then take the famous Bridge Too Far battle during World War II as another example. That was when the British 1st Airborne Division, sent to take a strategic bridge in the Dutch city of Arnhem, landed far from its objectives and faced unexpected resistance during September 1944. After nine days of fighting, the men of 1st Airborne were overwhelmed and lost almost 75% of their troop. They never saw battle again during the Second World War. They suffered 6,000 casualties out of 8,000. It was a complete disaster. However, the British regarded Arnhem as proof of their soldiers' courage and endurance. Arnhem became a byword for the fighting spirit of the British people. But in reality, it was a major defeat. Earlier, the D-Day landings had included over 18,000 paratroopers, and that was a success, in spite of troops landing off course and missing equipment. So you can forgive the planners for believing they'd get it right a second time at Arnhem. Back to 1978, and the South Africans knew a paratrooper insertion could be achieved. What's more, they had the ideal man to lead the jump, Special Forces expert and former paratrooper Colonel Jan Breitenbach. And what of this place called Kasinga? During Portuguese colonial times, it had been a small mining town with a long sprawl of buildings built around a deposit of high-grade iron ore. Ominously, for some of the South African paratroopers, it was also less than a kilometre from a winding tributary of the Kubango River. Some were going to discover how difficult it was to survive landing in a relatively deep river with 60 kilograms of equipment. Kasinga was deep inside hostile territory, which meant the airborne units would have to be extracted by helicopters to a safe area nearby before they were flown out in C-130s and C-160s. This area became known as the Helicopter Admin Area, or HAA, around 30 kilometers to the east of Kasinga, where there was enough open ground. Because the SA Air Force had so few super frelons that the bulk of the men would have to be lifted out using the smaller Puma choppers that could only carry 10 men each, this meant shuttling the choppers back and forth from Kasinga to the HAA. The planners thought that two hours would be long enough to clear the bunkers and trenches and extract the men. As you'll hear, that was hopelessly optimistic. What made the whole idea even more incredible was that the Angolans could call on Cuban-piloted MiG-21s as air-to-ground support. These would have made short work of the Pumas and Super Frenans unless the airborne assault could have been restricted to these two short hours, following which the paratroopers would leave as swiftly as possible and avoid being shot out of the air in the Pumas or Super Frenans. There was also a Fapla force based only 16 kilometers south of Kasinga at Techemuteti. The South Africans knew there were around half a dozen T-34s along with Soviet BTR armored personnel carriers there with hundreds of Cubans and Fapla troops. Looking back on this moment, we should also consider the political gamble. Op Savannah had cast South Africa as a Nazi state intent on invading its neighbors in the mold of Germany attacking Poland. Some in Pretoria were in two minds as the men gathered at the isolated farm outside Bloemfontein. Yes, the main aim was to kill planned commander Dimo Hamambo to destroy ammunition and equipment and also seize important military documents which may be Russian or Cuban in origin, and then to destroy ammunition dumps, equipment and the weapons. The documents were important, because Pretoria was playing a diplomatic card. They could wave these in front of the Western media as proof of Cold War shenanigans. They believed abducted sapper Johan van der Mesh was also in the small jail at Kasinga, if you remember last podcast, and if they found him, the operation would be deemed an internal success for National Party propaganda. Kasinga was only one of the targets. The other was Chetequera, where the mechanized force would attack overland. This was going to be a close call for the SADF, 
and would also be another incident reinforcing Pretoria's pariah status. Friends would become few and far between after this attack, particularly when Swapo alleged over 200 of the victims were children. This has been disputed, but try convincing those who've listened to the survivors relating harrowing stories every year when Swapo gathers in Kasinga to commemorate May the 4th, 1978. I've listened to those reports and I've also spoken to SADF veterans involved and they admit there were casualties amongst the civilian population, including children, but they dispute the number. As we all know, a single death of a child during military action is unacceptable, and yet we must ask a follow-up question. Why were so many heavily armed Swapo cadres based inside a camp they said was packed with refugees? Furthermore, aerial photos of Kasinga show quite clearly that it was heavily protected by trenches and bunkers and anti-aircraft positions. And a large cache of military material was discovered, such as ammunition, during the raid. Refugees are never housed inside a militarized space, and this is totally against both the Red Cross and Red Crescent policies. What was Swapo thinking if what they say about civilians dying is true? It's time to halt for this episode and secure the perimeter. Next episode, we'll hear about the opening phases of the attack on Kasinga and the second major assault at the same time on Chetiquera. Please rate the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, et al. And if you're interested in sending me a message, head off to the website abwarpodcast.com or through Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.